The poem you're about to hear is called Grand Canyon Eagle, was written by Jean Fairbairn and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. It is a beautiful poem showing the majesty of the great eagle. Do enjoy. I ride the air and hang motionless above my desert land, a kingdom bound by endless sky food beneath, picked out as I fly from reptiles basking on rocks below, lizards and chameleons who change and grow to match the colour of sand formations. Nature's way to separate nations with a kaleidoscope of colours and hues. Beiges and browns, greens and blues, and canyon cliffs in horizontal stripes are sandwiched in layers of orange and white. At dawn, a shaman beats his drum to summon up the new day's sun. Slow steps in circles, round and round, to wake his tribe with rhythm and sound. To tell my story in dance, not words, for I am eagle and king of birds, who follows the dance by beating my wings, and when I take flight, the canyon sings. Up and Down Ride was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Do enjoy. He was a world-weary man. He had lost his vision. He was not capable of making a decision. Irrational, he was tired. His cylinders refused to fire. Overworked and underpaid, he did not listen to the news, and his friends, well, they all shared common views. Disputes and conflicts in the world, natural disasters, cannot be fixed with a simple plaster. He buried his head in his hands. Where was the promised land? He watches as the milk and honey drip through his hands. Night, he does not sleep. He no longer counts how many sheep. In the morning he goes to work still yawning. He feels the salmon swimming upstream spawning in their last throes of life. There is no desire in him to hurry. The work he does only causes him worry. He is good at his job, but taken for granted. His fingers work as if implanted with a knowledge of what is required. The last thing he needs is to be fired. He feels he needs help to find himself again. He needs to be inspired. For his zest for life regain, he is world-weary as he sees the world around him. He needs reinvigorating to begin to find the joy in simple pleasures, to fill the glass, no half measures. He needs to find that life can be treasured. We can all have these feelings, but push them aside. Life is a life-provoking up-and-down roller coaster ride. Floating On, was written and is narrated by Julie Stevens. Do enjoy. Being stuck inside so much at the moment gave me the idea for this poem. It's how I imagine us all to be. Floating On We may decide it's time to wake, but not yet. 
In here we breeze past each other, looking for ways to hold on. Floating souls breathing the sedate way, on a path from morning till night, that only leads to the same. We hardly know what time it is. Feed, drink, float. Feed, drink, float. Carrying the monotonous cycle each hour makes. Scratching doors of release is a pastime forgotten. Squealing friends are no longer heard. It's just us, waiting for that spark of different. The world outside might let us in, bringing with it all shades of fresh. Polished air, impeccably clean. A quiet world, where only the flowers creak, could be ours to preserve one day. But for now, we float. The Dream was written and is narrated by Joan Tucker. Dear listeners, I would like to tell you about a dream I had last night. My husband had turned the spare bedroom of our house into a music studio. His overlarge computer lay at the heart of the room, dominating everything around it and lording it over racks of floor-to-ceiling CDs, LPs and singles. My old and much-loved dancer record player was in the corner against the wall, almost as an afterthought, and surrounded by computer games and old tapes. Everything that had been musical had been brought down from the much smaller music room in the loft. Only I wondered where my books, my poetry and my stories were. My lovely handmade, ornate filing cupboard was nowhere to be seen. My husband came charging up the stairs, barging past me and in a state of disarray. He was half dressed in a suit, shoelaces not tied, top button of his shirt open and his tie hung loosely about his neck. I was about to ask him what had happened to the room that had once been my beautiful library, but he was too busy getting himself ready while at the same time connecting all the different wires that lay around to various pieces of equipment. I could never really understand the need for all the coloured cables. I thought the sound was fine. Purple wire led from speakers to the sound system, orange wires trailed from the record deck to the whatever, and the white. Where did the white one connect to? Where's my white cable? he asked, searching under old but pristine copies of NME and Q music magazines. It's on top of the keyboard, I told him but he didn't hear me. He had never played an instrument before in his life, and yet here was one now, taking up the space where my writing desk had once stood. He loved his music, but he always played it so loudly, so he was banished to the loft. I always preferred the peace and quiet of my library so that I could write. Ah, oh, yes, there it is, he said. He plugged in one end of the white cable into the computer, before a voice called him from downstairs. You'd better hurry, Dad. They'll be here soon. Coming, he yelled back. I followed him down the stairs. My daughter was there, and so was my best friend, Jill, who smiled and straightened my husband's tie. She touched his shoulders affectionately and hugged him. I called out to my daughter, but she had already dashed quickly out of the door. 
Then I saw my friend Jill look at my husband in a way that she had never done so before, smiling and looking into his eyes. He touched Jill's cheek and then kissed her. After all this time, I still can't believe she suspected nothing, Jill whispered in his ear. It was all so easy, the coffee in her favourite cup, a half teaspoon of sugar and a touch of... His finger silenced her and my husband said, She was so blindly in love with me that she had no idea I was seeing you. Now she's gone, I can't wait for you to move in with me. They both turned to face me and laughed. I tried to shout at them, but I couldn't make myself heard. They turned to the window when a shadow fell across it and blocked out the rays of the morning sun, turning everything inside grey and dark. My husband, my best friend and my daughter got into the back of a black car and I could only stand and stare in horror at the long black hearse behind it. The gold chrysanthemum wreaths in its long side window leaned against a pine coffin spelling out the word mum. It slowly pulled away from the cab, scattering autumn leaves around it as it did so. Those in the car stared blankly and straight ahead, except for Jill's, whose cruel eyes turned and drilled into mine. They left me behind, and I watched until they faded from my sight at the top of the hill. I knew then that I had died. I woke up with such a start, drenched in sweat and shivering. It was only a dream, but it was still fresh in my mind and felt so real. Was it a premonition? A glimpse of what was to come? Or was I reading too much into it? They say at night the veil between this world and the next is at its thinnest, allowing things unseen to come forward and be seen. My friend Jill is calling round later on. We've arranged to go shopping in town. My husband is getting ready for work and has made me a cup of coffee in my favourite cup and has brought it up to me. Something he hadn't done for a long time. It's sitting on my bedside table and I didn't think I should drink it. Double Trouble was written by Rosemary Emmett and is narrated by me, Sue Oddwell Smith. Do enjoy. At last, our dream house, remarked Rachel, looking across to Andy, who, like her, was enjoying a cool glass of wine on the lawn of their newly acquired 100 year old thatch cottage, and a far cry from their cramped flat in town. The garden was full of mature shrubs and trees, while all around was an abundance of roses of many colours. They had often passed his cottage on their way to work. Oh, how I wish we could live here, Rachel sighed. Andy would give her a sideways glance, saying, That won't be any time soon, not on our wages. Rachel agreed and put the idea out of her head. Several months later, the unexpected happened. Andy's old maiden aunt died and left Andy a large inheritance of one million pounds, plus many valuable paintings. 
By sheer coincidence, a few weeks later, they passed their house, as they called it, and there was a for sale sign outside. Wow, remarked Andy. I can't believe this. Do you know what I'm thinking, Rachel? I think our dream could come true. Within a few days, they had arranged a viewing. It was just what they wanted. Natural stone walls, inglenook fireplace, dark wood beams, antique furniture and colourful rugs, plus a grandfather clock. The rest of the house did not disappoint, so they made an offer that was accepted. When they had finished the tour of the house, they were shown into an annex that was a studio filled with paintings. Landscapes, pastoral scenes and abstracts, then a series of portraits of a stunning young woman possibly in her late twenties, long blonde hair, blue eyes and a beautiful figure in various poses. The house owner and artist Benjamin Blake noticed their interest. Yes, that's my last wife, he said wistfully. I returned from a business trip to find a brief note saying, do not try to trace me and do not report me missing either. He then explained he was downsizing, hence the sale of the house. They sympathised with him, then said their goodbyes and informed him they would start proceedings with the agents. Andy drained his glass, looked across to Rachel who was happily relaxing. I can't resist it any longer. I've just got to go and investigate that old summer house we discovered at the bottom of the garden. Okay she replied. Meanwhile, I'll start preparing dinner. Rachel headed for the kitchen. Andy forced his way through long grass and weeds to the ivy-coloured summer house with cobwebs on all the remaining windows. Forcing the rickety door open, he could not believe the contents. There were shelves full of bottles containing plant feed, slug pellets, rat poison and strangely other less common poisons, strychnine, arsenic, bromide and mercury. He must have been a chemist, a gardener, an artist, and he thought to himself, recovering from his shock. Close by was a chest of drawers in quite good condition. His curiosity got the better of him, so he forced them open. He froze to the spot at what the drawers contained. Each drawer held body parts, neatly wrapped in thick, clear plastic bags, including a neatly carved head and neck. He gasped in horror to see the head and neck of the beautiful woman in the painting. Still not believing what he had just seen, he rushed to the house where Rachel was putting the finishing touches to the meal. Seeing his white, shocked face, she cried, "'What on earth is wrong?' You look as if you've seen a ghost. Worse than that, he gasped, relating his horrific discovery. They contacted the police and a short while later they arrived with forensics and the investigations began. Several days later, the doorbell rang. Andy answered it. With Rachel close behind, they were speechless, then gasped, But you're de dead! Sorry, replied the attractive lady, possibly in her thirties. 
I'm calling to see my twin sister on a short notice visit. I'm here on a business trip from Australia. I did not have time to inform her this will be a surprise for her. Obviously, she's moved without telling me. I've not been to England for six years. You had better come in, they replied in unison. We have two poems narrated and written by Colin Reeves. The first is New Life Has Begun, and this was a trip to Zimbabwe with Colin's church. And the second is I'll Just Keep Quiet, which is an amusing little ditty as to when not to talk. New Life Has Begun A taste of an African nation in the midst of our civilization. The passing town's men passing now and again and feeling a tender sensation. Memories of Africa rise at the sight that's in front of my eyes. The figures, the flags, the statues, the bags cause happiness, longing and sighs. I'm reminded of days yet to come when I'll fly out and welcome the sun. The African nation will cause a sensation and I'll know that new life has begun. I'll just keep quiet. The aliens have landed and they're not too far away. I'll tell you all about it, but I know just what you'd say. You'd think that I'd been drinking, or I'd seen them in my head. And so I'll just keep quiet, and I'll take myself to bed. Oh, Colin, there are times when you have to learn not to say anything at all. Definitely. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) A Death Knell was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by me, Sue Rodwell-Smith. Tower Blocks. Apartments in refurbished blocks. From ivory towers eyes look down, capture the heart of the city, the country town. Terraced rows, parks with trees and flowers, the pavement pounded by many feet, walking up and down familiar street. The way we live, the way we choose, the disappearing shops, livelihoods to lose. Fixed-eyed mannequins looking out to us from department stores. Something to purchase on every floor. If these shops close, where will we browse the time away? Buy that present for that special day. We will all say farewell to our friendly mannequin and the trend of clicking fingers will begin. Unfortunately, it's a sign of the times and we will all be clicking fingers choosing items online. But I like nothing better than a trip to the shops At the coffee shop, I always stop. Pass the time, people watching us as they pass by. Then something a mannequin is wearing catches my eye. Christmas will be bleak. No shops lit, brightening up the street. Empty windows stare at us, soon to look run down. A death knell sounding for a country town. Uncertain times, how the high street will fare. But I know we will miss it if it is no longer there. Thank you. Written by Isabel Cook and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. NHS workers are modern-day soldiers fighting this war. Just to say thank you when they deserve so much more. The NHS are working constantly and tirelessly. They are caring diligently and conscientiously. 
putting themselves at the risk in the line of fire, our respect and our regard for them could not reach any higher. Shelf stackers, cleaners and all the key staff hope they can still smile and raise a family time laugh. They are fighting an invisible foe and how to defeat it we cannot know. We as a nation are playing our part. We as our nation have a big heart. Volunteers helping to deliver things people need. Postal workers, care staff, everyday people doing a good deed. Refuge collectors, refrigerators, expertise, keeping the nation ticking over and every day working, while this invisible enemy is always in the background, lurking. A dedicated army trying to keep the wider population safe, each needed and valued, they have an important place. They are in our hearts heroes, every one. Keep them safe and well until the victory is won. What Happened When the Old Dog Smelt Bacon was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. Do enjoy. The grumpy old dog lay upstairs asleep, curled in his cosy bed, dead to the world. His dreams of rabbits, cats and rats were deep. Vivid impressions filled his head and swirled chaotic through his consciousness until downstairs the man took bacon from the fridge and laid the rashers neatly on the grill. The rich, beguiling smell soon built a bridge between dog dream world and reality. So down he hobbled, every stair a trial, each step a challenge to infirmity. The bacon, though, would make his trip worthwhile. And so it proved. The man just smiled and said, "'Tis only bacon lures you out of bed." The tale you're about to hear is called Deadly. It was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by Roger Ems. If you're a little squeamish about spiders, I suggest you don't hear this story. Do enjoy and sleep well. Deadly by Isabel Cook Ryan Oswald descended the steps that led to the old house's cellar. He turned the large ornate key in the lock and entered the dimly lit space. Ryan was a collector of spiders. This room had almost all known species. There was one that was not known to the scientific world and this was the deadliest of the arachnid family. It could kill and the way it reproduced was unique amongst its species. Ryan put on his protective clothing. He was not taking any chances. He looked at the spider that he'd named the deadly web. It lay on its side and looked lifeless. He shook the glass tank. There was no response. Ryan waited, but the spider remained lifeless and he continued to examine his other specimens. He'd been in the cellar for about four hours and went back to look at the rigid spider still on its side. He carefully removed the lid of the tank and poked the deadly web with a chopstick he had lying around. It was difficult to hold the stick with his thick glove, so he removed it. The spider then took the opportunity for a deadly launch. 
Ryan was officially reported missing a week later. His work colleagues thought that he was off sick as he'd not reported into work. Sylvia Smythe called round at Ryan's home, but there was no answer. The police broke down the front door, but they found no one. His photo was circulated, but nobody came forward, except an elderly gentleman who'd been walking his dog. He'd passed Ryan on the morning of the 6th of July. The police took his statement, but were not convinced that the man had actually seen Ryan as he was visually impaired. The police, however, made house-to-house inquiries in the area, but no one recognised Ryan's photograph. Sylvia had taken Ryan's diary from his house when the police broke in. She was intrigued with what was written and she showed it to the police. An address was written in the sleeve, but most of the diary was in code. Sylvia had deciphered some of it. There were two words that kept cropping up, deadly web. The address, 22 Clayton Street, was investigated. The house was empty and no one found the steps leading to the cellar. The police had drawn a blank. Squatters broke into the house soon after and made themselves at home. They were a congenial group who were simply homeless. They made the empty house cosy with bits of furniture collected from grass verges or left outside houses wanting to be rid of their items. Lisa McGee painted murals on the magnolia walls. There was no graffiti. No one seemed to mind that they were there and no one bothered them except for bills that kept coming through the door. The electricity and water were eventually cut off, but the group still managed to function, unlike the spiders in the cellar. They were trapped in their glass coffins with no access to flies and beetles. One spider, however, was thriving. The squatters had lived there for almost a year when a fire broke out. A propane gas cylinder had somehow ignited. The house was declared unsafe for the squatters to return and they had to move on. One of the firemen, Richard McCormack, fell down some steps. He picked himself up but had turned his ankle when falling. He leant against the wooden door at the bottom of the steps and it slid open. His disappearance raised more questions than answers and it was assumed he'd perished in the fire. Examination of the house after investigators were satisfied with the cause of the fire did not reveal a body. Another fireman remembered seeing Richard heading towards the fire truck, but nowhere else saw him at all. They were all preoccupied with putting out the flames. Richard's phone, like Ryan's, was circulated but no one came forward. Richard was pronounced missing and the case was left open. Ryan had no family to look for him, but Richard did. He was not the sort of chap to go missing without cause and his colleagues and family mounted a vigorous campaign to try and find him. 22 Clayton Street had been boarded up and the search for Richard began here where he was last seen. 
His young son was sure that his daddy had somehow been abducted by aliens. He was into spacemen and rockets. There were other theories, one of which was that Richard had simply abandoned his position on the fire hose because of a breakdown and walked off. His wife thought this theory feasible as Richard was undergoing counselling. He had attended a house fire recently and was unable to save three children trapped in an upstairs bedroom. Richard's wife was desperate to find him. She was sure he needed psychological intervention. Sylvia Smythe took the diary to someone who was excellent with crosswords. He began unravelling the code. The two learned more about the deadly web, which left them in a state of terror. Sylvia never did like spiders, but this one on paper was the deadliest of all the arachnids. They took their findings to the university, where a Professor Adams was intrigued by the diary as he was interested in spiders. The information on the deadly web fascinated him, but led him to be wary. How had Ryan caught such a specimen and where was it? This spider should at all costs be found and kept in a secure environment, announced Professor Adams. Both of Ryan's addresses were re-examined. Every spider was either killed or caught. Examinations proved they were just ordinary homegrown species and not ones from the tropics. 22 Clayton Street was picked over carefully. The structure was not stable. One young policewoman was walking by the back wall when she caught the glimpse of a step. Wondering where the step led, she pushed the thick foliage away and descended the steps down to the door. No one heard her scream. In the cellar, Lucy was being encased in the web, her eyes aware of everything. The spider's feather-like touch brushed her cheek. The paralysis of her legs had been instantaneous so she could not run. Numbness was slowly taking hold. She could no longer feel her arms. She was terrified to look at the two bodies, their heads encased in a fine-spun cocoon. She would scream, but she thought she might swallow the spider. What was this place? Why had no one found it? There were windows at the very top of the wall and daylight, although not very bright, allowed her to see in the dim light. She closed her eyes and thought of our father before she felt the spider on her eye. It began to feed. Lucy Maynard's disappearance in the same vicinity as the house at 22 Clayton Street could not be explained. No evidence of a struggle was found. Lucy, like Richard, had simply vanished. The authorities thought that a serial killer could be responsible. They did not link the disappearance of Richard and Lucy with Ryan. Only one other person thought that perhaps Ryan had vanished in the same way. And that person was Sylvia Smythe. Police patrols were increased and Lucy's photo was added to the missing board in the local police station. 
No members of the public had any reliable information about Lucy. Two women remembered seeing her at 7am and there were some crank calls. One confessing to Lucy's murder, who described her as tall, blonde and beautiful. Lucy was petite, had brown hair and was round. A year passed and no sign of any of the missing persons was reported. It's the stuff of alien abduction, Sylvia said, half laughing. How can three people just vanish, said her colleague. Well, people do. It's far too common an occurrence. They usually turn up, but people do vanish, Sylvia replied. But Ryan had so much going for him. Promotion, his own laboratory. Yes, I admit I can't fathom it either. I wonder where it is, Sylvia replied, not expecting any answers. Sylvia sat in the car and looked at the bird house at 22 Clayton Street. She was sure that this is where she would find the answers. She turned the key in the ignition. But where to look, she didn't know. The ruins had been extensively searched and no clues found. The motor throbbed. She glanced down at Ryan's diary, most of which had been deciphered although one section remained unread. She turned the ignition off and the motor stopped. Sylvia got out of the car. The authorities were still looking for the deadly spider. They'd only found one, which was a black widow brought back in someone's suitcase. Thankfully, no one was bitten and the spider was successfully detained to the relief of the owner. Sylvia stood and looked at the boarded up windows. One was loose, she could tell, as it was hanging at an angle. It didn't take much to prise it open. Sylvia was wearing a skirt, not the best of attire for a break-in. The place smelled of burnt wood and paint. The murals Lisa McGee had painted were still on the walls, faded and marked where the burnt floorboards had fallen on them. They were rather good. Sylvia picked her way over the debris, wishing she was wearing flat shoes. She knew that Ryan had a deadly web somewhere and she was perspiring. She looked up. The wall didn't look right. Sylvia traced it with her hand, walking carefully along. She came to a gap, which she squeezed through and wondered why no one had noticed this before. It was dark. And at the end of the short corridor, there was a sealed door. Sylvia couldn't open the door, but she could see light coming from a tiny crack in the frame. The authorities came and examined the wall. It was cleverly constructed and appeared to be a straight wall. But as Sylvia had found out, it was two parallel walls, one set slightly back from the other. Ryan hadn't even noticed it. Sylvia told the fireman to open the door carefully as she was not sure what was on the other side. They didn't heed her and crashed through the door. Henry, the tallest fireman, was greeted by a large sticky cobweb. He brushed it aside and then yelped, I've been bitten. His voice was muffled due to his mask. But another fireman, Anita, heard him. 
She wondered why Henry couldn't move and her eyes strayed in the direction of the three bodies. Get out, she shouted. The other two firemen backed away and the three of them shut the door. Where's Henry? One of them inquired. He's been bitten, Anita replied. Bitten? Yes, by a spider. Probably the deadly web. We can't help him now. Oh my God, seal that door. Oh, Henry, Henry, mate. Henry's voice came faintly through the door. There's a few spiders and they're climbing all over me. My, my head's covered. I can't feel my legs and my arms are numb. I can see three bodies, but I can't tell who they are. Their, their heads are cocooned in webs. Oh, tell my wife and children. Henry, Henry, Anita called, but no reply. Henry's lips had become frozen and he could only see what was being done to him. The door was sealed. No one knew of the steps leading to the other door, thankfully. That door by the steps was old and had stuck fast after Lucy Maynard had entered and it has closed, sealing itself. The firefighters were in shock. They phoned the appropriate authority who came running. Sylvia was contacted and was asked to relay everything she knew of the deadly web. The last two pages of the diary she had not managed to decipher. Sylvia was put in touch with a person who was an expert in code breaking. Ryan had devised this code himself. The code breaker, Agnes Philpot, scanned the numbers and letters. She announced that it was a pity that Ryan may be deceased as he was still officially missing. This is an excellent piece of work, Agnes told Sylvia. A very clever brain devised this. I can make out some of the letters. We'll see by the end of tomorrow what I've managed to uncover. Agnes took the diary, promising to return it, but she didn't say when. The pages explained that the spider was both male and female, a hermaphrodite. A certain cycle began every two years and eggs were laid. Only a few spiders made it to adulthood out of hundreds of eggs that were produced. They were cannibalistic. This is good news in the way for the authorities. They knew that they would only be dealing with a few spiders, but each one would be deadly. The problem was how to kill the spiders. At the present time, it wasn't possible to remove the bodies. Not only was it dangerous, but opening a door could allow a spider to escape. Sylvia, on going to work one morning, saw a house with its walls being filled with cavity insulation. Does the insulation set hard? She inquired of one of the workmen. Well, yes, was the reply. She phoned the appropriate people and plans were put into place. A hole large enough for a hose to fit through was made through the door at the end of the corridor in the house. The hose was pushed into the hole directly and cavity wall insulation started to fill the cellar. The bodies were left in situ. No one knew if they would ever be able to retrieve them. The four victims were slowly being covered in cream colored foam. The spiders climbed onto the ceiling. They too would soon be covered. The pressure of the insulation was gradually opening the door 
by the steps. 22 Clayton Street had become a shrine. Hundreds of flowers and messages were left by the yellow tape. The authorities were careful what they told the press. They did not want to alarm the public. They were convinced that the bodies were those of the missing persons, Ryan, Richard and Lucy, and then the unfortunate Henry. The cavity wall insulation had done its work. The cellar was sealed, the spiders on the ceiling encased as well as the bodies. The other door had blown open and foam had spilled out. At the edge of the rock-hard mixture lay what looked like a dead red spider. A stray cat wandered along by the steps and on spotting the spider patted it with its paw. The spider launched itself onto the poor cat.